Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Culture and the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Tim Williams, I'm your host for the Grimshaw Podcast Series, Culture and the City. My really excellent guest today is Rose Hiscock, who is Director of Museums and Collections at the University of Melbourne. Uh, Rose tells us that she more or less launched uh, the Science Gallery four times because of the COVID difficulty. So we talk about her work, uh, her role in Melbourne, but also her feelings about and insights into the culture and the city discussion internationally. We talk a lot about the impact of COVID on her activities and how she responded creatively to that. We also have a specific conversation of Australian interest, but I think of international significance around the role uh, of Indigenous culture and arts in her collections, but also what she is doing to bring them to uh, greater attention in life. And she also says rather a lot, which I love, about improving access uh, to culture and the arts in Melbourne for kids from a you know socioeconomic backgrounds that you might think of as disadvantaged. So for me, this has got everything. I hope you enjoy it. She's got a great series of insights. She's got a great voice. She's great fun. She knows everything about the arts and culture worth knowing. Um, and I think you'll find this is a really interesting conversation. Uh, Rose Hiscock, uh, it's delightful to speak to you after a little while. We'll come back to, to that. Uh, and since I last saw you, you moved city, although back to your your well is it your native city melbourne oh kind of i i actually grew up in ballarat uh, ah. so uh and then moved to 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 melbourne to go to university so it's my my native state i think you'd say so to explain to an international audience so melbourne is uh, victoria which is one of the states of australia melbourne's a big international city of about 5 million People and a very, we'll come back to this word, in my view, a very cultured city. So we'll, mm. we'll come back to that word. But uh, Ballarat is like a mining town, a gold mining town, uh, a couple of hours away, um, with, its, with itself a, an extraordinary bunch of 19th century buildings. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I always, I, having lived in both Sydney and Melbourne now, um, it, it, Ballarat and Melbourne were both wealthy cities but um and built on gold they were they were very strong gold mining uh cities and sydney was built on rum and <laughs> and i think that says it all that is such a beautiful way to begin and not at all controversial in an australian context obviously the other yeah. thing is the uh again for those people listening internationally a uh, couple of contexts uh, melbourne uh, in the 1870s before its crash had the most expensive real estate in the world, uh, largely because mm. of the gold, but also because it was like, you know, a very, the, the colony was doing quite well, really. And uh, and Ballarat has these amazing buildings that only a once rich uh, town can can have. And it's and it's just about, I think, on its way, or maybe getting status as, a, uh, you know, the UN kind of uh, heritage site because of its, uh, its gold links. So, you know, we're talking about, um, some really interesting places, and Melbourne is a is a beautiful city. And I want to come back to all this stuff, but let's go straight to what are you up to now, Rose? Because you've uh, you've got a distinguished background as a kind of uh, curator of museums and running them, and big in the in arts community over a long period of time. But you've now got a rather a, a big gig, as I as I think of it, in Melbourne. Tell us all about that. Yeah, so I'm the director of uh, museums and collections for the University of Melbourne. And uh, I've 
in that role, I'm responsible for five museums or, or galleries. So a combination of art, art museums as well as the science gallery, which I'm sure we'll come back to. Uh, but also the university's collection from a strategic perspective. Uh, and so the University of Melbourne was formed, uh, its cultural collections were formed at the same time as the museum, the Museum Victoria. Uh, and it, it was a, the, the collection came from, the, from, from that, that sort of shared collection. And if you go back to the collection and start thinking about it as a whole, um, to just give you some numbers, the, the value of the University of Melbourne collection is a is $350 million. We value collections um, for all kinds of reasons, all institutions do. Now that valuation is the same as the Powerhouse Museum. In so, Sydney, in Sydney. Yeah, in Sydney. Yeah. So yeah. it's a very, very significant collection. And from everything from rare books to natural history specimens um, through to what is the most significant um, collection of first uh, first people's collections. So it's what... an extraordinary yeah. collection uh, with, you know, the, the, the best Indigenous collection in, well, did you say Australia or one of the best in the world? Uh, it would be a prob one of the most significant, definitely the most significant in Australia. And as a, a collection of first peoples and Indigenous collections, um, you know, one of the most significant in the world. And of course, the thing about um, Indigenous collections is that we are, as in the university, the custodian, it's the communities of origins are really the, the owners of those collections. So, um, but it's very, very important. And so the question for an organisation that has such a collection is how to look after it responsibly. It's fascinating. Um... I kind of knew we would talk about that and uh, it would be a unique conversation that you and I would have about that because we've been going around the world with our Culture and City uh, podcasts and, mm. and I, you know, I, I'm going to talk to you about both the word culture and the word city in this discussion, but it is a really important um, thing that distinguishes Australia to some degree, that it's got this um, amazing long Indigenous history that is still, you know, giving us kind of contemporary um, force and presence today and it is a really important part of your role to make sure that that is respected and presented and I think that's that's really interesting and I want to talk about this when we talk a bit more about the word culture but let's go back one step you've got five organizations that you run um, or, in, or at least you know you have oversight over and one of them is the the thing that uh, uh, famously, and I, I think you you told me that you you kind of started the science gallery, kind of launched it four times, partly I guess disrupted by COVID. Yes, that's right. We um so so let me just explain science gallery for a moment, and it's yep. really the project that brought me back to Melbourne. Um, it's a so science gallery is a global network of galleries that use the collision of art and art and science to inspire young people into both the STEM disciplines and the creative industries. We are an international network and have um, eight nodes all attached to universities and all worldwide. So uh, Dublin, London, Bangalore, um, Atlanta, who have I forgotten? Rotterdam, Melbourne. So it's a it's this extraordinary network of I think we're the only network in the world that work in this way. So we 
we are all we all work independently of each other, but we share the same values, the same mission, the same principles, and we share our exhibition and IP and content uh, to, that each of our nodes can work with, build on, represent in their own right. So, and in their own way, it's the the museum sector's moved on from um, packaging everything up in a box and putting it on in freight and sending it to the other side of the world. Now we ship the IP if we can. If if then you know, of course you can't ship the um, if you've got priceless objects, they do need to move. But this this um, our methodology is to move the ideas and move the IP. So who? Yeah. So where did the idea come from for the uh, this amazing international network of the science galleries? So it came from Trinity College Dublin um, under the leadership of a fellow called Michael John Gorman, and they worked out that they had this perfect formula, which was um, the, using the collision of art and science and this um, ready-made market in universities of young people. And so um, in, as all great entrepreneurs do, they came up with the concept, it worked exceptionally well, and they did it spun it out really globally to and to other universities around the world and so the university of melbourne were at that time building an innovation precinct and i know you're yeah. uh, very interested in 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 precincts in general but but particularly um these precincts that that bring together different um attributes and put them together to rub shoulders. So the University of Melbourne had bought, uh, it's actually an old hospital, the former women's hospital site, and were looking at how to develop that as a precinct. And to their great credit, um, realised they needed to build public amenity into, into building a precinct. It couldn't just be a university um, set of offices and teaching facilities. It had to have, had to have public realm. It had to have a place for engagement for young people and so Science Gallery was the was a great way to do that. It was very focused on young people and young adults and students, uh, but also thinking about pathways into both the creative industries, pathways into STEM, both of those things the university is really interested in, as are gov governments and all kinds of other partners. So you mentioned the uh, famed concept of the inno innovation precinct, and uh, M Melbourne Connect is is an innovation precinct I think or or is it a creative and cultural industries precinct you tell us anyway what's the what's the relationship between what you're doing and the innovation precinct there yeah so we take the ground floor of Melbourne Connect um and it is a really a mixed precinct but all with a a focus on innovation um so it's the the anchor tenant is the faculty of engineering so and particularly the the, the um, school of computer science so there's a real data sort of data enabled solution sort of core and then a series of um, tenancies everything from you know childcare through to student accommodation um, to co-tenants and then a sort of a conferencing facility that joins everything up with good coffee and it works it's a it's very buzzy and I'd, I'd encourage anyone who is uh, either online to have a look or if you're in Melbourne pop in it's it's um very it's welcoming it's not a it's not a closed place um and and it is really buzzy it just occurred to me that you've got a bit of a, a track record in being interested in both the arts and the sciences the uh, because the museum of arts and sciences in sydney of the powerhouse was definitely that um is this just happenstance or have you got a real desire and a passion around the, the linkages between the two 
I've got a real passion, Tim. I, I um, and in fact, my, I have a, a degree in economics, so I'm neither an artist or a scientist. Um, but I also have a real belief that uh, that we we cannot leave communicating science only to scientists. It's everybody's business, and particularly in the with the the grand challenges that we face at the moment. If we think about climate and climate science. That is a problem that we have to link arms on and we need everyone involved. And so for the, the, the key attribute of someone working in the cultural sector and in museums is storytelling and weaving a good narrative and finding the data and the evidence and putting it in a, in a certain order or in a certain way. And so my, my first job actually in, in this um, storytelling world was actually at Sovereign Hill in Ballarat. Oh, yeah. um, Way back when I was a, a kid, but my then at um, when Science Works opened for the Museum Victoria, and I worked in the museum sector. Um, I worked at the Australia Council, so then I flipped across to the arts, um, and then to run the powerhouse, which, as you say, is a museum of applied arts and applied science. Applied arts and science. I always yeah, which is which yeah. is the key word, right? Yeah, so it's it the, it's the making, it's the doing, it's the application of, it's the roll up your sleeves and be hands-on and that's the bit I love it's the transformative power cultural sector for me is about trans transformation it's about impact it's about the so what you know the the changing of a life and I love the decorative arts I I I, I really do however in my career I've been drawn to the to the to the application of so to what end um and I think I, I do believe that art for art's sake is is as important. But for me and, and for the work that I've been doing, it really is around um, that sort of light bulb moment when you're working with a young person or a student or they're in the space with you and they can see a world in front of them or possibilities. Um, and, you know, just the, the last piece on the science gallery approach. Um, we have, if you come and visit one of our exhibitions anywhere around the world, you'll meet a student, you'll meet someone who's studying arts or science in our in our target audience. So they'll be 15 to 25. And they are extraordinary. And they have this exceptional ability to convince any young person who's in the gallery to want to be like them. And so to think about their own career and their own uh, journey. And they become these exceptional role models. Um, I had this great letter from a, someone who, who um, you get many of these letters when you run a museum and it started with, we went to see your exhibition and we had to wait 45 minutes, you know, in the queue to get into the draw. And I'm thinking, oh, here we go, where's this going? And she said, I'm just writing to thank you. In that 45 minutes, Marie, your young mediator, who's one of our young gallery attendants, convinced my daughter to study science and now wow. she's enrolled. Wow. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's great. It's a really that. good story. I also, by yeah. the way, I wanted to say that the, um, so uh, I often like to bring in the fact that I'm Welsh and it's unavoidable to the, to the there's, there's two reasons already. Yeah. One is I can't, let, I can't let Sovereign Hill go by. We have to explain uh -huh. Sovereign Hill is where the, the people who went on to do the Eureka stockade met and were like Democrats and radical Democrats in Australia in the 1870s? No, 1850s. 1850s, right? Yeah. Yep. And that, that there's a there's big history in Australia about you know the radical the, the Labour Party effectively sort of comes out of that and the move towards democracy and it's a big moment. But did you know 
that one of the radicals involved was a Welsh chartist who ran a pub in Sovereign Hill. I'm so proud of the fact he was both a chartist and he ran a pub, and I think it's an entirely Welsh idea. So uh, that's one. And the second thing is, the great thing about Welsh, uh, traditional Welsh poetry is that it doesn't quite have the same romantic notion of the English poet, which is that it's all about um, it's like spirit and soul and stuff. The, the Welsh thing comes from a much more medieval notion that you make poetry, that oh, you are, yeah. you know, and the poets in, in Scotland were often called makers, uh, and because they craft um, poems which are, you know, have certain structures, and they're not all about just um, kind of romantic notions of where creativity comes from. They're based on tradition, and they're based on on making. And I'm quite interested. I, I I do like the idea that culture and science are really important to each other. And I think going forward, my own prejudice will be that the jobs of the future are actually going to require not just an understanding of technology and science, but great cultural, historical, and and arty kind of cultures to so that you understand the agendas. The humanity is facing and I think the uh, there's a lot of emphasis in, in discussions about the jobs of the future that actually understanding context uh, you know and actually bringing new traditions to bear on technology and science will be really important so I, I think maybe you've hit on something quite big now one thing one thing you did say that we need to go back to is that you tried to launch the science gallery four times right so either something big was going on in the world or you're not really very good at launching a science gallery. So what actually happened? There was indeed something seismic happening in the world, which was, a, of course, COVID. Um, look, the, the, which is quite an interesting time to be um, building a new space in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, our project was in flight and um, already, and you may or may not know, or your global audience may, you know, uh, Melbourne was one of the most locked down cities right. in the world, but the construction industry was able to work. Um, and so the building, the building continued. Um, and in fact, I suspect for the, for the builder, it was a dream not to have the client <laughs> doing endless, endless hard hat tours, but um, so the building itself kept going, but we did have supply supply chain changes as everyone found, and the and it was delayed. But then we just could not get physically the people in to open it. So as in us, we we had to bump in an exhibition. We then had to fill it with people and launch it. Um, so on one hand, it's been quite a it's a very odd thing to say, but it has it's been quite a nice way to open a gallery because it's a lot, it's gentler, it's gentler. It's happened in stages. Um, we got to test out the building. We had, you know, um, limits on the number of people through the door, quite a good experience for people who were in because it wasn't, it's not been, you know, as crowded because of the um, limits on the number of people. Um, I, I think our audience is really understanding and there's a gentleness around the way they experience the space. So I, you know, yes, it was frustrating. Like everyone, we we were on again and off again. The uh, so, uh, I mean, the, the experience of COVID and the, and culture and the arts. I mean, at one level, it, it was you know catastrophic and you know just just very destructive. And lots of cultural and organisations went through terrible times, and artists suffered. And you know, so how did you manage to keep going? You said that there were some uh, kind of advantages in a sense in you know opening in that period. It allowed you a, a gentle leading time. You you learned a few things about running spaces I guess and then you just you know you're now I, I guess open fully but how did you manage in that interim period I mean lots of mm -hmm. people suffered rather badly did, did did you have a what problems do you have 
Yeah, I, look, I think our, our workforce definitely um, struggled. I think it was um, a difficult time for, um, a definitely a difficult time for our for our people. And it really depended on um, different circumstances. So we have a lot of young people in our workforce, you know, people who shared houses, people in small flats, and that period of long lockdown was really, really, really heavy going. Um, we're also, as I mentioned earlier, part of the University of Melbourne. So, I mean, to the, the university's great credit, they um, were very considered in the way they can, they went through the pandemic, needed to make some very difficult decisions um, around the workforce. To, to a degree, our project was quite a lot, it was a long way down the track before COVID happened. So, so all the sort of building pieces, as I said, had happened. And we hadn't yet scaled up to a full staff. So, right. um, and a lot of what you do in the museum world is plan ahead. So you 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 you're always working on the next thing. You're always working on the next exhibition. And a lot of that work happens remotely anyway, because you're planning with artists, you're planning with loans, um, you're scheduling. And so that work can happen. You know, it's it's not our industry can 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 work with that. I think the industry that really really suffered through that time in the arts was um, anything with a commercial yeah. uh, ticket. So theatres in particular, um, it, you know, it was very 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 difficult. You know, oh, anything, yeah, I get yeah. that. I mean, it's very interesting. The <clears throat> when I interviewed the guy who runs the London Culture Mile, it's a really good initiative, which, we, which I'm sure you're aware of. But essentially, five or six of the key international institutions in London close mm. to each other physically have a kind of uh, a relationship a collaboration what they discovered was they lost catastrophically lost mm. all their national and international visitors because you know London having big sort of cultural tourism you know they lost most of that in COVID but they gained uh, a lot more understanding and engagement with local communities that they'd not yeah. had yeah before, which I thought was quite surprised and quite encouraged by and they wanted to keep on with that after, yes. Afterwards. Yes. Yes. What do you make of that? Well, Tim, you know it's a really good point, and I was just down in Hobart last week for Dark Mofo, and I'm a real believer in the hyperlocal thing. If you can get your local community engaged, um, everything follows. So if you want tourists, get your local community engaged first, because it's like the coffee thing. Get you know make great coffee for your residents and then everyone will start fl flooding to it so if you don't focus on your local community and your um you know hyper local community your, your your core community then the rest the rest won't follow so so you've got to get that right so in a way COVID was that lens on the hyper local and 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 everything does um, um go from there so i want to I talk a bit about your the precinct that you're in, in terms of the five, just for me to get it fixed in my head, yeah. are they all more or less in the same uh, area in physically part of the university or are they uh, around the place? They're, they're um, on the two campuses, the South Bank and the um, Parkville campuses of the university, so north and south of the river. And for those of uh, your listeners who don't know Melbourne well, the river's kind of the divide, the funny divide in Melbourne about north and south side. Um, so we have two art museums. We have the Potter Museum and Buxton Contemporary. Um, the Potter's also in a redevelopment stage at the moment, and that will open um, 
in a little bit over a year um, with an extraordinary exhibition curated by Professor Marcia Langton called oh. 65,000 Years, A Short History of Australian Art, right. uh, So, uh, which will be amazing. And then the Buxton Contemporaries, a newish uh, space um, with a, a focus on living contemporary artists in South Bank. We then also have a the very uh, idiosyncratic Granger Museum, which is a museum um, around per, uh, named and with the collection of Percy Granger, uh, and then my team also, yeah, everything from his toenails through to his uh, compositions. <laughs> and uh, I, but, I prefer I prefer the latter. Yeah, 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 totally. Well, the interesting thing on the former is now museums are in a different space now, so we're in a time where we're interested in in truths and we're interested in in um truth telling and so the stories that might have been put into the closet and that we didn't talk about um we now expose and we talk to so percy granger is really interesting in that there there's some part of his him and his collection that um is well documented such he uh, such as his compositions that are revered around the world there are other parts that um, ask more questions than they answer. You know, he, he it's a it's a that's what museums are for to to really expose some some well, difficult truths. It's really interesting because it's uh, something we could talk all night about. We will yeah. we won't talk about, but uh, but but this very interesting idea that sometimes we have an unrealistic desire for our artistic cultural heroes to be incredibly pure, and um, mm -hmm. it's, a it's never true of humanity probably, and b it might be connected with what made them great you know the up and the downside go together it's very different uh, i know today we i think we sometimes want you know greater purity retrospectively than than maybe we're capable of and some of these people were complex it seems to me but i but i just want to say to you the well, two things right one is about a precinct thing and the other one's about a melbourne thing the so mm -hmm. the precinct thing is that and it'll come to the word access which we sometimes you know, over abuse uh, in these things, but a it's important to be you know uh, to get as many uh, people in and as many people as possible engaged. So that's you know that's all that access really does mean. It seems to me. So I want to ask you your views on on that. But also, it seems to me that um, access could be um, opening the museum, uh, sort of inviting communities in, but also opening the museum out. Uh, you know, both kind of cult, you know spiritually, if you like, and also physically. Right, so mm -hmm. some museums are, are post-COVID are thinking about you know the square, the squares outside, the precincts outside, where the, you know all that physical stuff. But at the same time, thinking of how they get more and more diverse communities into that. So your notion of access, how's that? How's that? How do you think of this? It relates both to the people working in the, in museums because it's they're curated spaces, right? And so they they're places of power. And so we really have to ask the question about whose authority and whose voices are doing the talking. And then, there, then there's also access for audiences themselves. So to the former, the piece around the staff. So we've, we um, in our team uh, have a very, very strong focus on our um, Indigenous staff. Um, I think we're about 15% of our staff are Indigenous, but also um, sitting alongside me, I have a direct, uh, so I'm the director of museums and I have a director, we have a director of um, reimagining museums, and that's Brooke Andrew. And he and I together um, work work in a linked up way around what what this what a museum even is. And so that's and that that's a really um really important aspect. Um we also have 
very, very strong First Nations governance in our museum. So from every level, from governance to director and in our teams, we, we have a, a strong in, Indigenous uh, workforce. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, Culture and the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. But you've got a considerable engagement with schools to the Science Gallery. How, what form does that take? Yeah, that's right. We're a centre for, uh, called a centre for STEM excellence. Um, and we have a catchment of 25 schools who have science gallery embedded into their curriculum. So it's not like a normal excursion model. It's more these school kids throughout their whole school life will have an, ex it will come in and out of the gallery some weekly um, to, to experience the, to, to, to have an embedded approach where our exhibitions inform the curriculum. It's really unusual. Um, we asked for uh, a very high level of schools uh, in lower socioeconomic um, catchments. Uh, we have the school for the deaf. And for, for these school kids, um, they get to see, have their first experience of a university. They have their first experience of just um, understand, you know, coming into the city as part of their, their curriculum. And it's absolutely fantastic. You really see these kids, uh, these school students uh, change across the course of the term. So for me, that's part of access. So it's yeah. it's the audiences who are, um, who, who may be, as I said, coming to the city for the first time or experiencing, uh, seeing students, seeing students studying at university and starting to ask questions about what course they might they might do, or for just seeing people like them, um, is that old, that thing of you know if, if you can't see it, you can't be it. And I think um, museums have a very important role to play in that sort of democratisation of of arts and culture. I also think I, I, what I think I hear in what you're saying as well is what I love about what culture in the city does together, which is that you've got a scale in the city and a, a resources in the city that if you even if you live in a far flung suburb of the city, it's still your city and you can go into the center not that far away and see amazing things which which people who, who don't always live in cities don't always get to to visit very easily so i think it's a it's a great thing i also think that the the attractions of the collections you know can transform lives you know people see things and encounter things that they change their lives you know and they, they as you were saying i think uh, from you know one of the visitors sent you a a note saying that actually their daughter decided to study science because of going to one of your collections. I, I want to talk about this, the Melbourne, and I want to talk then about the future of cities and culture, because I've got a, a, a conversation going which suggests that city centres are reinventing themselves as central experience districts after COVID. There might be slightly less business going on because people are doing hybrid working, but there might be a lot more culture and the arts and attractions going on, activities to, to seduce people back into the city. What do you think of that conversation? I think that's a great, a great notion and I can see it happening. So the city becomes the canvas in a way for other activities and activities that are different to, to, to you know, what, what um, you would expect. Um, you can certainly see that arts and culture is the, 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 the perfect way to do that. Um, you know, cities like Venice, I heard this great review of the Venice Biennale, which was that Venice itself, the city was the, the the um the silent audience the backdrop for this unfolding kind of opera that happens through the Venice Biennale um the buildings are the witness to it 
in a, in the same way a city like Melbourne, which is not you know not the most beautiful city, but it is embedded and imbued with this um, this sense of uh, cultural pursuit. And if we go back to the start of our conversation, you know Melbourne um, from the from because it was a wealthy city, because it had gold, it built these these wonderful cultural institutions, the library, the museum, um, it has a fantastic art gallery, the fantastic collection. And a, and a public that get out and visit and come together and um, and in the part of the city where much of the arts and culture is located was the Tandarum, the meeting place, the gathering place um, for Indigenous peoples, for First Peoples. So from, we go right back through time. Um, Melbourne was a gathering place, and that's what arts and culture does, right? It's both. It's a, both an individual pursuit where you see something, you hear something, and you're moved beyond belief, but you also do it as a social pursuit. And that's the beauty of arts and culture. See, this is very critical. I think it's a good place to uh, drive towards the end of our conversation. The, so Melbourne, for the, and again, for an international audience, I, I, I sort of slightly disagree with you, about, but, but in a way, Melbourne has got an, a, a great structure to it. Whatever one thinks about you know, beauty, its structure is fantastic. So it's a very walkable city. And, um, I, you know, I think a, a lot easier to navigate than a than a Sydney, although I'm, I'm not going to get into the Sydney-Melbourne rivalry. I will lose all friends you know, on both sides if I go much further. But I do think that Melbourne has got tremendous bones, you know. And uh, I think the second thing is you, you make a very good point about uh, its relative wealth uh, meant that it had cultural assets and it still has considerable cultural assets. But I also remember hearing from somebody who was an entrepreneur uh, in Sydney and Melbourne about bringing theatrical productions to Australia that they they come to Melbourne, <laughs> they mm. Melbourne you know attracts either attracts them first or uniquely uh, and it's partly and I want to talk a bit about this. There is a kind of collaborative culture I think in in Melbourne around you know pride in in the city, pride in the artistic and cultural accomplishments of the city, and there is a kind of we the city, a kind of you know, cities collaborate to compete, and I've always thought Melbourne was better at that, and was and was actually very proud of its cultural achievements. Do you think that's true, or am I being a bit romantic about it? No, it is true, Tim. And I, I having worked in both cities, and again, I don't want to get into <laughs> that them and us thing at all. Um, yeah. I think both cities are fab fabulous and have great attributes, but. I, Melbourne is collaborative, and I think it is because it had had to, you know, to to and and because it, it's smart. It worked out that layering is better than going it alone. That linking arms is you're going to get a better outcome. So, the city is is actually jumping. You know that we've just had the Rising Festival, um, and you know there are people out and about. Um, the thing Melbourne does well is you can it's this hybrid experience you can you know of going out and having a, a a good meal you know great food and wine and then dipping into a cultural experience so either dipping into you know a late night at one of the cultural venues um as part of your night and it's not the be all and end all it's part of it so so that sort of holistic experience works incredibly well um and as i said it's 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 intensely social it's every age group but very very strong young adult cohort out and about in the city you know dipping into those different parts of what it has to offer so let's talk about that and then i'm going to talk ask you at the end to in a sense reiterate your mission or where you go next okay so let's do that yeah. but yep. so the first thing is uh, a discussion we've just touched on um 
what what's come out of the conversations I've had about cities in these podcasts is that they are essentially reinventing themselves, and that you know I come from the kind of uh, real estate sort of background into this discussion. How is real estate and city streets reinventing themselves after COVID? And there's no question that the hybrid working universe seems to be more or less here to stay. It might vary in cities. It might you know it might be. 40, 50% back in the offices in some places and 70% in others, but essentially it's not the same as before. So city centres particularly have to earn their keep in a different way. And it looks to me as though the direction of travel is what you've just alluded to, I think, which is that uh, here's a great uh, discussion. There's lots of evidence that what's happening is that uh, people are only in the city centres for two days, three days maximum at the moment. So Thursday night in some cities has become party night, not Friday mm. night you know, Wednesday night in some cities. So we're seeing some strange, interesting patterns of people not in the city for work, but coming into the city for entertainment and to be diverted from being at home. So, you know, we, we, we are beginning to see the kind of party city phenomenon of, uh, i give an example of just I plucked from my own reading, but Leeds in, in, in the UK, you know, regional city, three or 400,000 people, doing quite well in getting work, workers back in the offices, probably 60% occupied. London's only about 40%, right? Mm. But uh, in the evening, some in the evenings, they're seeing more business than they were seeing before. And they're seeing lots and lots of business at weekend, um, more than before, more than before COVID. So it, there's a kind of feel out there that people are going to use their city centers in different ways and at different times, but they'll want to get out of the house still. So there's a, an opportunity and a need if we're going to reanimate our cities and remember we've got a lot of legacy buildings to think about you know is is to find ways to reanimate the city and i think culture and the arts will be pretty central to that next phase of city development what do you think rose well i think that's really exciting it's almost it's a reversal in it isn't yeah. it so you know we we work in the home and 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 go into the city in the evening for our for our leisure time and uh for our social time. And I, I love that reversal. I think it's re really, really interesting. The other point to keep in mind is, and I know there's many cities around the world in this category, but Melbourne certainly is a university city. Yeah. So it's it has people at the heart. The University of Melbourne has 50,000 students. So it's a, you know, it's a very large number of young adults. So, and and then we are linked up, or we can almost join, um, bump into it, um, RMIT, which is which is you know also a very significant uh, tertiary institution right in the heart of the city. So that animation through young people and through a very diverse, very, very diverse student cohort um, really does change the character. So they're, they're, they're people centric, you know, they've got people at the heart. Um, and the business piece is therefore sort of not pushed to the side. But it's sort of complementary, but it's not the dominant uh, experience. You raise a very important point about the importance of universities to this placemaking going forward, though, you know, which is that although they've all, you know, had to do hybrid lessons and lots of it online and stuff, we really do quite need the universities to retain their physical reality um, in order yeah. for people to be at the centre of, of the city. Absolutely. And and um, we have the University of Melbourne has a very strong push and the vice chancellor um, uh, leading us around, um, you know, this campus experience. It is a, it is a, it is a university that has a has a campus. And what does that mean? You know, those social connections that you make 
through being together um, is really, really important. And again, that's where museums play a part. And I know that, that you know, we all have a strong digital outreach and um, but that on the ground in gallery experience, it just can't be replicated. It, it, it's just so fundamental to, to, to that, that um, part that a museum or gallery or collection plays, the physical object, the physical experience is primary. So look, I could talk to you for a very long time Rose, about these matters, but I'm going to bring it to a, an end by saying a little bit about what I've just heard, but then ask, asking you to say a bit more about your mission from this point on going forward. Where do you go next with your, your yeah. thinking and your work, right? So I think one thing has come across, Rose, apart from the love of what you do and your uh, affection for your city and for making it work and the communities that you love to engage with, I think I've been very interested in your notion of access and your notion of reaching out to communities and your staff. I, I really like that idea because I do think this indigenous discussion is an international discussion uh, and it's uh, what I would hate is for it to be commodified quickly. I worry it's a bit like sustainability sometimes when I hear people sort of glibly talk about designing with country and I, which I'm for, you know, but I don't want to tick the box, you know, too quickly. I want to deeply sort of experience and talk to people and learn from before we design things. And I loved what you were saying that you've, you know, for people who don't know, perhaps 3% of the Australian population is indigenous, but 15% of your workforce. So this to me is, I think I like the reality of what, what you're doing, the respect that you want to learn from these communities. I think also what I think comes across, which we probably didn't say enough about, but the internationalization, the internationalism of Melbourne itself is, is pretty extraordinary. There's just an amazing diversity of cultures already in the city. And it's, you know, it's, it's a very important part of its character and will be even more so going forward. And I, these are not, you know, these are physically cities that seem a long way away, but they're very connected to big international communities, particularly in Asia. And I think that's an interesting trend going forward. I think the, the, uh, the other thing is we've talked a bit about the importance of um, the, the, the reinvention of the city, perhaps around culture. And I think that's a very important moment. And we touched on at the end about the centrality of perhaps universities going forward. They've got a physical space in cities and their students are really critical uh, to the future of those cities. And I, I think that's an important point to end on. I, I also, by the way, love, you know, I, I'm obsessed with the idea that high culture, as it were, can also be accessed by kids from working class backgrounds, because that's actually my own story. You know, I'm very keen on that idea. So you, I, I loved what you were saying about the 25 schools that you, you're engaged with particularly closely. Where I wanted to go to end is your reflections on, on what you what you plan next with your five institutions and uh, what, what can we look forward to? Mm. Um, Tim, thanks for those reflections. I I, I, um, I agree with you. There's it's there's a there's a story. There's a narrative through um, where we find ourselves now, particularly the piece around diversity and access and centrality of who we are and our and our first people. So that's really important for me. In terms of where I'm going, um, there's a there's a there's a thing about universities, right? There's a piece around doing um, the work that I do in arts and culture within a university that enables a different kind of conversation. And it's a conversation and a, a remit and a mission around impact. 
So everything we do, all of our programming is um, issues-based. So we've just, our first exhibition at um, Science Gallery is um, on the theme of mental health. Um, the, the next one is around um, group think and control and are we part of a pack or do we go it alone? Um, so for me, we, I, you know, this sounds really, really cliche, but I do want to change lives. And I do think that arts and culture museums do change lives. They connect people and the topics and the subject matter uh, become embedded in the way someone lives their life or what how they think. Um, so we, we're really influential. And universities um, are a place to have that dialogue that's a little bit different to public institutions because we don't have the same constraints. We can, so the piece I was talking about earlier around truth-telling, um, that's, you know, um, the ability to tell the truth, the ability to um, tell a story that may or may not be favourable to the institution is possible. Uh, so you can get into some very, very difficult issues. Um, you can explore explore ideas in a way that's quite different. And therefore the exhibitions that we develop, the content that we develop for me is all issues based and really about um, asking questions that you might not be able to ask in other environments. And that's the opportunity really. Look, I think it's a brilliant place to end. And I, I just want to echo the, I said earlier on, the centrality of arts and culture to the future, you know, not just as a kind of look back, but a look forward. And I think in that, uh, on that pathway, what's going on in Melbourne and what you've been leading, Rose, is going to be very exemplary. And we've really enjoyed listening to the conversation tonight. And I urge people to, to get get on a plane or get in a car, get in a train and go to Melbourne and see your stuff. So um, thank you very much for that, Rose Hiscock. Thank you, Tim. And just a, a quick pr um, plug, Have the, the starting point to enter what we're doing is called the Cultural Commons. So have a look, just Google it, look up the Cultural Commons. <laughs> Interestingly, the first um, item that might come up is a burger joint, which I kind of secretly love. The second one that will come up is our strategy. So the Cultural Commons, which is around saying arts and culture is for sharing. Um, it's not uh, an area that we had previously said was a cultural estate, we now think of as a commons. And I think that's the philosophy of what we're doing. You've been listening to the second series of the Grimshaw podcast, Culture and the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.